The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Avery Schmitz, intern at Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 15th, 2023. This week, Iran reopened its embassy in Saudi Arabia after the two countries signed an agreement to normalize relations last month. The deal comes after seven years of severed ties, during which tensions were high between the two nations. An incident during this period came in September of 2019, when reports indicated that an attack, which crippled Saudi oil production infrastructure less than 100 miles from Riyadh, was orchestrated by Iran-backed Houthi forces. To recount this defining moment in Iran-Saudi conflict, I chose an episode from the Lawfare podcast from September 17, 2019. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Gregory Johnson, Suzanne Maloney, Samantha Gross, and Scott Anderson to discuss the attack, its implications for regional security, and the merits of an American response. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 17th, 2019. Tensions in the Middle East are at a high point. Over the weekend, large Saudi oil facilities were attacked. The Yemeni Houthis jumped in to claim responsibility. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo blames Iran. President Trump tweets that the U.S. is locked and loaded and ready for a potential response. But what has actually happened in the Arabian Peninsula? What does the future hold for conflict between the Saudis and the Iranians, and what role will the United States have? Benjamin Wittes sat down with Gregory Johnson, a researcher on Yemen and Middle East conflict, Suzanne Maloney, Brookings Senior Fellow whose research centers on Iran, Samantha Gross, a fellow in the Cross Brookings Initiative on Energy and Climate, and Scott R. Anderson, a fellow at the Brookings Institution and senior editor at Lawfare, to break it all down. They discussed what we know about what happened over the weekend. They explained the geopolitical context for the attack, offered their thoughts on potential American responses, and discussed the legal authorities that could justify American military action. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 453, The Attack in Saudi Arabia. Samantha, get us started. Give us an overview of what happened here. We know there was an attack. It involved oil production in Saudi Arabia. What do we know about what happened? 
there was an attack on a huge crude oil processing facility called Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia. And energy security folks have been worried about this facility for a long time. In fact, there was another attack on it back in 2006 that wasn't nearly as successful as this one. This facility, what it does is it removes hydrogen sulfide from the crude oil and makes it safer to ship by tanker ships. This facility is really the heart of Saudi oil production. The Saudis supply about 10% of global oil supply, and this attacking this one facility took 6% of that supply off the market. So this was a very significant attack on a really important facility. What do we know about the nature of the attack? I mean, obviously, it's it's a matter of some dispute who's responsible for it. But what do we know about what the nature of the attack was? Tricky question. We know the attack came from the air. There's definitely some dispute on where that attack came from, and I'll leave that to to more intelligence-minded people to talk about. But what we know is it took out about a third of this facility, about a third of the processing facility. Um, There's some redundant capacity there, so they'll likely be able to get it back online, but it was a significant and very well-targeted attack on this facility. All right. So, Suzanne... The U.S. claims Iran is responsible for the attack. The Houthis claim they are responsible for the attack. And the Iranians say we are not responsible for the attack. What do we know about reasonably how to assess responsibility here? And to what extent should we be confident that the Iranians were involved or responsible for it? I think it's too early to be confident about much with respect to the origins of this attack. There's a lot of information that's circulating over social media, including photos that suggest there may have been cruise missiles involved, as well as drones. And uh, there are statements uh, emanating from the U.S. government to a couple of media outlets that also reinforce that, that this was a multi-pronged attack involving both cruise missiles and drones. And at least what we're hearing from the U.S. government to date is that it appears to have originated in Iran rather than some of the original supposition that it was either Houthis operating from Yemeni territory or from Saudi territory. Now, these are very traceable forms of technology, both drones and uh, cruise missiles. If, in fact, it originated in Iran, there should be considerable uh, ample proof And we should be able to draw upon not just American intelligence, but general marine intelligence, as well as uh, information from many of our partner countries in the region. Okay. And Suzanne, there was a a theory for a while that this may have been launched from Iraq. Is that still part of the conversation at all? I think there was some speculation early on, in part because there was evidence during the attacks in the summer that the Shia militias in Iraq were involved. Secretary Pompeo has made some remarks that seem to rule that out, but I think there are real reasons for entertaining some of the various theories on who and how this might have been undertaken. Including, Gregory, the possibility that it was undertaken by Houthis, but not Houthis in Yemen. Is that part of the range of possibilities. Yeah, that's another theory that's come out, that there were potentially Houthi uh, affiliates or agents that may have been closer to the facility themselves inside of Saudi Arabia that were able to to launch the attack. Secretary of State Pompeo, as Suzanne mentioned, came out very forcefully, I think, on Saturday and mentioned on Twitter that these attacks did not come from, from Yemen. It's unclear what evidence the U.S. Is, is using to base that, whether it's just that the attacks were on the north and northwest side or if there's 
hopefully there's other evidence for senior officials to be making that sort of a statement. So in other words, at this point, the range of possibility is quite large. Is that fair? I think that's fair to say. The Houthis claim credit. The U.S. says it didn't come from Yemen and it didn't come from Iraq, which then, of course, leaves Iran. Gregory, you know, the more you learn about the sort of scale and operational sophistication of the attack, whether it involved cruise missiles or drones, it doesn't seem very Houthi-like. What do we know about Houthi capability before this weekend at when they claimed credit for their responsibility, credit, whatever, for, for this attack, what would you have assumed them to be capable of in terms of damaging Saudi, a major Saudi oil facility? Yeah, that's a good question. So the Houthis, you know, we tend to think of them as this militia group, barefoot tribesmen up in the north, and certainly they are that. But they've also they're also a militia that's been grafted onto a national army, and so they do have a missile brigade that they took over from the Yemeni government when the Houthis seized control in 2014. In fact, the old missile brigade commander is now the minister of defense for the Houthis. It's also something that over the past couple of years, most likely with assistance from Iran, that Houthi capabilities, both drone technology and with missiles, has grown. So uh, a couple of years ago, they were able to fire a missile that made it all the way to Riyadh, which is um, you know more than 500 miles north of, of the Yemeni border. And so this is something that the old Houthi missiles, or the, at least the missiles that the Houthis had taken over from the Yemeni military, were only going about 300 miles or so. So this is a significant up whether the Houthis would have been able to carry out this attack or not, um, if they did and if they're telling the truth and the Houthis are not exactly honest brokers all the time when it comes to claiming credit for attacks, this would be a, a significant step forward for them. So, Samantha, I was thinking this morning in any prior administration to this one, if it were, say, George Bush Sr. or Bill Clinton or you know any recent president, and you said there were a major attack on, on Saudi oil production, that is something the United States would traditionally use military force in response to or at least re- regard itself as within its security umbrella – and an urgent matter of its own national defense to protect against. And yet today, the response to this is is that the president is still talking about meeting with uh, President Rouhani in New York. And so I'm, I'm just interested for your thoughts on the sort of disparity between U.S. reaction to this so far and what one would expect U.S. reaction under more normal circumstances to look like in response to an attack of this magnitude on this kind of a facility. Well, this is certainly an important attack to global oil markets, but not only do we have an unusual president right now, a lot has changed since the administrations of the presidents you're talking about. Most importantly, the U.S. has become the world's largest crude oil producer, something that wasn't true um, prior to this presidency. And so that really changes the calculus. It's also true that this president has really pushed an agenda of energy independence and energy dominance and pointed out the fact that he doesn't think we need the Middle East anymore and that he doesn't necessarily want to spend money and resources defending this area. And so I think some of that muted reaction is part of that. 
the one thing that I've been talking about a lot today with various people is this is so much a, somewhat of a repudiation of the idea that the Middle East doesn't matter anymore, that the U.S. is energy dominant, because you've seen markets react strongly to what happened. Six percent of production is off the market, and we'll see how long it stays off. But this is really important to world oil markets, and it's somewhat a repudiation of the idea that we're so energy dominant that we don't need the Middle East anymore. So – but that's interesting. I mean, do you think the the principal difference is that Saudi matters less than it used to? Or is the principal difference that we have a president who cares about the Middle East less than presidents used to? I think they're both true because we also have a president that has been um, very happy to side with the Saudis and scapegoat the Iranians as often as that opportunity presents itself. And yet his response against something that looks like the Iranians were certainly involved has been somewhat muted. And I think that's because we feel like the Saudi, at least the Saudi oil supply is less important to us than it used to be. Although we feel the price impacts just like everybody else. So Suzanne, I'm I'm interested in your sense of the Iranian side of this. If you were the Iranian leadership and you're contemplating A, the escalated tensions that have developed over the last couple of years, but also the prospect of, you know, a sidelines meeting at the General Assembly between Rouhani and the president. Why is this a good time to A, launch such an attack, B, inspire such an attack, or C, facilitate such an attack by others if, in fact, the Houthis were the hands-on operational attackers? Right. Um, it's, a, I think, the question that those of us who focus on Iran have been thinking about today um, why this attack, uh, why this kind of an escalation, and why now on the very eve of the UN General Assembly meetings where there was such hype around the possibility of a meeting between President Trump and his Iranian counterpart, President Hassan Rouhani. And of course, just this attack comes really on the heels of the exit from the White House of the most notable hawk, uh, John Bolton, the national, former national security advisor, who of course has made a career of calling for military strikes and regime change on Iran. This might have seemed to be the perfect moment for a kind of conciliatory diplomacy from Iran. But of course, that's not the Iranian style, or it's not the style of the Islamic Republic. I should be precise about that. Um, and I think, in fact, while we're still speaking the hypothetical, I, you know, I'm waiting to see, along with the rest of, I'm sure, your listeners, what exactly the administration and now, of course, the United Nations, uh, which has been called upon by the Saudis to conduct an independent investigation, might be able to marshal in terms of hard evidence to tie this attack to the Iranians. I'm not presuming anything at this stage. But if it is, in fact, traced to the Iranians in some way, shape, or form, and particularly if it's traced to an attack coming out of uh, Iranian territory and orchestrated, in fact, by Iranians rather than by proxies, then I think it's not quite as shocking or as unexpected as we might have presumed Iranians really since May have been using escalation as a mechanism for injecting greater urgency in the international community around the crisis that they've been facing since President Trump walked away from the deal in May of 2018 and began reimposing crushing economic sanctions on Iran. They've also been using escalation as a means of trying to change President Trump's calculus. It's very easy for him to continue to apply these economic sanctions. They haven't had any real blowback effect on American security. 
on the international economy or on global oil prices, in part because of this, the dynamics of energy markets that Samantha just explained. And what we saw over the summer was that Iran apparently undertook a series of attacks on small tankers, um, very minor elements of the overall energy infrastructure in the Gulf, a port in the United Arab Emirates, a pipeline in Saudi Arabia, and oil markets effectively shrugged off uh, those attacks. And while there was a little bit of saber rattling and a little bit of concern, uh, particularly after the Iranians downed an unarmed drone that was surveilling the coastline in the Persian Gulf, um, there really was no military response of any significance from the United States. And I think the Iranians haven't quite gotten what they needed out of that escalation. They need an exit strategy. They need a mechanism to persuade President Trump that maximum pressure is not in his interest. And the best way to do that is to threaten the global economy and by virtue of that threaten the prospects of his reelection and a strike that takes out a significant proportion of global spare energy capacity will have that effect. All right, Scott. So let's, uh, with that as a factual backdrop, let's consider the law of all of this. You know, you have a significant strike that may or may not be either conducted or aided or inspired by the Iranians, may have Houthi involvement or may not, and is against the Saudi Arabian economic sort of vital organs. What are the tools reasonably immediately available to whom, including especially given that the president has uh, kind of rattled sabers on Twitter in response. If you were still at the State Department at, at the legal advisor's office, what memo are you being asked to write today? At this stage, lawyers in the Trump administration are going to be first looking at uh, the question of what sort of legal case can be made that the United States has a, a legal right or, or capability to respond militarily in a, in a variety of different ways. And then there may be other non-military tools that we can discuss as well. In regards to military solutions, the international law side of this question uh, really is pretty straightforward. There's very little doubt that Saudi Arabia is a subject of an armed attack. Uh, there may be some dispute about the scale of it, but the level of harm and hostilities here, we're talking about a major attack on a major facility. I haven't seen fatalities numbers. It's hard to imagine there were no fatalities. Um, but uh, regardless, it seems to pretty well easily qualify for an armed attack, uh, in which case Saudi Arabia will have a right to kind of respond against, in a necessary and proportionate way, I should say, as against the perpetrator of that, that attack. So it comes down to a question of attribution, whether that credibly be Iran or whether it be the Houthis who have already accepted responsibility. Uh, and that, that question of credibility really lies in the eyes of the party undertaking the military action, in this case, perhaps the United States or Saudi Arabia or their allies or and the broader national community, whether they accept that legal justification as valid. Saudi Arabia is the one with the right to respond in self-defense, but it can ask the United States to step in and cooperate with us in, with it in exercising that right in what is called collective self-defense. And if the United States does so, uh, and there is clear evidence linking this back, this attack back to Iran or to another party that they undertake military action against, 
it's a hard case to imagine that many people would object to there being some sort of right of response here. Although, again, it has to be kind of scaled appropriately. Uh, even an international community that's very skeptical of the Trump administration and its position on Iran. And that, to some extent, is why this is such an escalatory and exceptional move. From a U.S. domestic law perspective, the executive branch has maintained uh, for a number of decades across administrations now that the president has the authority to engage in the use of military force abroad under two conditions. One, in pursuit of a U.S. national interest, and two, so long as the use of force is not of a scale that, quote-unquote, constitutes a war for constitutional purposes. Here, there's little doubt that the executive branch is going to be able to identify a national interest at play here in regards to the impact on the global economy, on the U.S. economy, uh, U.S. security commitments, not necessarily obligations in the region, but certainly longstanding policy um, towards the Gulf region. A variety of factors will kind of allow them to make that case. People may contest it, but the bar is very low. It's a pretty subjective standard, not very constraining on the executive branch. The real constraint then becomes, well, what kind of level of force can be used? It's not clear legally exactly where the line or where the executive branch thinks the line is about what constitutes a war for constitutional purposes. But the big factors tend to be something like the use of U.S. ground troops or the use of major escalatory hostilities, large-scale civilian casualties, things like that. So if the United States wants to pursue a relatively minor response, such as a set of airstrikes, it likely feels it has the legal authority to do so already. Again, that's controversial. Some people don't agree. In particular, some folks on Capitol Hill disagree um, that the president has that authority, but the executive branch maintains that it doesn't has for, for many years. If the president, however, believes that this need requires a much larger military response, an extended military campaign, or that there's a substantial risk of it escalating to such a military campaign, a factor that the Trump administration itself has really emphasized in its legal analysis of prior situations, then they may feel compelled, or at least feel that the strongest legal argument is that they do need congressional authorization for that. And if that's the case, well, then they have two options, essentially. One, they can go to Congress and try and get that authorization. Or they can look to other laws on the books to say, well, do any of these reach this situation? We've heard murmurs from the Trump administration at various times that the 2001 authorization for use of military force, that's the same law that authorizes uh, the war in Afghanistan and military operations against al-Qaeda, could reach Iran potentially as well, based on some Iranian ties to certain al-Qaeda members um, prior to 9-11 and afterwards. It's a weak case. I think it's one that lacks a lot of credibility. Uh, I think it's one that's not likely to be well-received. But it's it's hard to say it's absolutely outside the realm of possibility for an argument that the Trump administration could choose to advance. So it's at least an outside possibility there. Although, again, I think it would entail major political risks. The last step in all this, the last actor to think about really is Congress. Uh, we saw Congress earlier this year try and pass a statutory provision that would have prohibited the president from engaging in the use of force against Iran, except in certain self-defense circumstances that would reach to the circumstance. Um, but we saw it fail in the Senate uh, simply because it couldn't reach the 60 votes necessary to defeat uh, a filibuster. So you, we have Congress kind of on the record, a majority of Congress really expressing a lot of reservations about engaging in this sort of military action. And I think that sort of factor, even though it institutionally may not limit the president's legal authority, is really likely to weigh in here as the administration considers a response. Congress has been very skeptical of a major military campaign against Iran. And, you know, the Trump administration may reasonably fear that 
pursuing that sort of policy, even if it thinks it has legal authority, may result in more conflicts and less support from Congress than it would need, particularly in the lead up to an election year. So it may be more hesitant to pursue that path, even if it's legally available. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. 
Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So, Samantha, it seems to me in the first instance, the question is what the Saudi government does, right? They are, after all, the victim of the attack, uh, although the perpetrator of a lot of attacks in, in Yemen, which we'll talk about in a moment. But they're the target of this attack, and they are a famously impenetrable political target to understand, at least for me, other than that they don't like the Iranians and will likely blame things on the Iranians. What should we anticipate in a Saudi response, both politically and militarily? It's a difficult question to answer. I think something that's going to play into the answer to that question is I feel like this attack was a really specific personal affront to Mohammed bin Salman. And here's the reason why. The Saudis are really focused right now on the IPO, the initial public offering of Saudi Aramco. That's come back to life recently and it's something that's really being pushed forward. The idea behind this is that they'll use the revenue behind that IPO to invest in the economy, to help move the economy away from its dependence on oil. This is something that the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has been super focused on and has really staked a lot of his reputation on. And this attack is a real blow to that. 
What it does is it demonstrates that the production there is much more at risk than anyone knew. There had never been an attack this successful on that facility before. And I think they'll recover from this attack. We'll know more tomorrow, but I think they're likely to recover fairly quickly. But this ability to attack their production has been demonstrated right now. And so this is really an attack at the heart of the Saudi economy and a heart, an attack at the heart of what MBS is trying to do with the Saudi economy. So that certainly argues for strong action. On the other side, nobody wants a war in their yard. I mean, they they have this enmity towards the, the Iranians. However, a hot war with Iran is not something that does anybody any good. And so the balance between those two factors, the the really deep strike at their heart versus not needing any more problems erupting in their neighborhood, I think that's the calculus that's going to have to take place within the Saudi government. And assuming they feel that they cannot not respond to it, the Iranian military is quite battle-tested in a lot of areas. The Saudi military has had its hands full in Yemen. Other than kind of getting us involved, what is their actual leverage to respond? Like, what, what are their options? That is a difficult question. I'm trying to figure that out myself, actually, because they're already beating the Houthis to death in Yemen and, you know, going after the Iranians by proxy. I'm not sure where they have the ability to go from there. I'd be interested to hear from our other panelists. So, Gregory, do you have a sense of that where if if you're Saudi Arabia and you want to hit the Iranians back in response to this, what do you do? Yeah, well, it depends where the attack comes from, right? So if it comes, if it came from Yemen, and if the Houthis are correct, then it's part of this broader ongoing war. And that sort of limits it in a sense that the Saudis have an immediate target, they can go after Iran by hitting the Houthis who they see as an Iranian proxy. But if it's launched from Iran, if it came from Iran, then this is something where, as I think it was said earlier, we'll know pretty soon where the attack came from, then it's something else entirely. And then Saudi Arabia either has to respond or they're in a position where they may invite invite more attacks if you take the view that Iran has slowly been escalating over the summer. What do you think, Scott? Well, one other consideration I think that has to be entering into Saudi thinking at this moment is that it is really in a position where it's goodwill with the international community is probably approaching a nadir, um, never necessarily a high threshold to begin with. Um, but we have seen Saudi Arabia come under incredible criticism for the conduct of the war in Yemen, for the Jamal Khashoggi murder uh, late last year. And really, the Trump administration has been one of the few allies that's really still bolstering Saudi Arabia. Other countries are maintaining military ties and a couple other relationships, but and of course, oil purchase ties, but they're under increased domestic pressure and domestic strain. And from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, I kind of suspect that their confidence that the international community will have their back if in the event of a conflict with Iran uh, is dwindled. Um, even if there's a strong case Iran has taken a brazen attack, the calculus may shift a little bit. Whereas a little bit of a grayer picture, they may be worried about that support from the international community they would want in the event of an armed conflict. And that may be leading them to take what is so far at least has been a little bit more of a conservative approach even than American officials in trying to attribute this attack. So, Suzanne, I bet you have not sat at a whole lot of tables in which people have asserted that countries other than the one you study are even more unpopular right now than Iran. But that actually is what Scott's suggesting, that the that Saudis may be being cautious because they look bad next to the Iranians. Do you have a sense of like 
assuming you're Saudi Arabia and you decide that uh, you need to hit back from this, what are your options? Well, let me just stipulate, I, I don't in any way disagree with what's already been said by Scott and others here about the kind of PR problem that the Saudis have. They've poured billions into reputation laundering and, and lobbying over the years. And I think, um, if anything, there is just no purchase among the American electorate and more widely among domestic publics uh, around the world for the the kind of sales pitch that MBS uh, tried to launch uh, a kind of new vision for Saudi Arabia and a, a close ally and friend of the United States. That said, I don't think the Saudis ever look beyond um, one address when it comes to considering uh, their own security and who has their back, and that's here in Washington. And obviously, there's a you know real precedent for that in terms of prior administration policy and coming in in a very strenuous way to try to ensure that we, in fact, did defend uh, the Saudis against any prospect of an attack, for example, after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. It was the concerns about his future uh, mindset and, and whether Saudi Arabian oil production and uh, the uh, autonomy and independence of, of the Saudi kingdom would be preserved that helped to mobilize an American effort to generate international support for a coalition to defend the kingdom. Um, and I think if anything that, you know, the kind of U.S. Uh, preeminence in Saudi security uh, mindset has only uh, intensified since in the 30 years since that time. I do think that from the perspective of how might they respond to uh, Iran, they're once again looking to Washington. The Saudis have some considerable capability when it comes to at least actual arms purchases. One of the leading uh, arms importers from the United States and a number of other Western industrialized countries. Uh, it hasn't always translated to military effectiveness, which Greg can speak to in much greater detail than I can, particularly in the case of Yemen. But I, I'd also point to the sort of history of some reticence on the part of the Saudis to go up against the Iranians directly. Um, this is a very different time, very different leaders in both countries different political context all around. But if you think back to 1996, when a terrorist attacked a housing compound near Dahran, uh, 19 American uh, military personnel were killed in that attack. The Clinton administration traced the, the attackers to orchestration from Tehran. The Saudis were very averse to cooperation uh, in prosecuting that attack miraculously, or perhaps not. In 2015, the purported ringleader uh, actually turned up in Riyadh, and I think uh, justice was settled on the part of the Saudis from there. So there is, uh, I think, a different way of doing business. Um, that was a very different kind of an attack. And as I said, the political context in both Saudi Arabia and Iran was very different at that time. But I think it's not inconceivable that the Saudis will choose to uh, look for ways to de-escalate with Iran, uh, just as we saw happen with the Emiratis after the attacks which targeted ships in their ports this summer. Uh, in fact, what we've seen is, a, at least briefly, some um, new life for a diplomacy between the Iranians and the Emiratis, I think suggesting that uh, at least some within the Emirati leadership we're, we're happy to engage in support for U.S. pressure on Iran, but when they recognized that there was a real cost to their own security and to their economy, they were, they were more interested in diplomacy. 
All right. So one area where the Saudis have not ratcheted things down is Yemen, and they've kind of not facing the Iranians directly have, you know, really been very aggressive. And so, Gregory, just give us a sense. All of this may involve Yemen directly or it may not, but it certainly involves Yemen to the extent that the Houthis have you know, claimed responsibility for it. So what is the state of the Saudi involvement there, again, which is, of course, the backdrop against which all of this takes place? Right. So the Saudis went into Yemen back in March of 2015. And their idea, uh, what they were telling people in Washington here at the time was, look, it'll take us six weeks. We'll push the Houthis out of out of the capital, Sana'a. Um, the legitimate government, President Hadi, will be able to return. He was in exile in Saudi Arabia. We'll just bomb them. They'll flee back to the mountains. Everything will be taken care of. We're now four and a half years on. The Saudi strategy of airstrikes has not worked. And so now Saudi Arabia is faced with, I think, militarily, they have basically three options. They can withdraw completely, leave the Houthis in control of the country, and that then the Houthis will clearly declare victory. Saudi Arabia doesn't want that to happen. They're worried that the Houthis will be essentially Hezbollah south on their border. Saudi Arabia can double down on what it is that they've been doing over the past four and a half years, send ground troops in in an attempt to push the Houthis out, but that would be bloody. Um, there'd be a lot of a lot of Saudi casualties, and there's also no guarantee of success. So they're, they're unlikely to do that. So that means that they keep doing what it is that they've been doing for the past four and a half years, which is carry out airstrikes, which kill a number of civilians, kill some Houthi fighters, but have very little impact on the ground. And as Scott said, Suzanne said, as everyone around the table has said, as this war has gone on, the UN calls Yemen the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Um, everyone who touches it from the US to Saudi Arabia to the UAE is really being tarred with this. And you see this um, just a couple of months ago, the UAE announced that it was drawing down. The UAE is clearly looking for an exit. In, in Yemen. The U.S. would like not to be associated with this. And back in April, President Trump vetoed the joint resolution from, from Congress asking to cut off U.S. support, um, U.S. logistics and intelligence support to the Saudi-led coalition. So Saudi's prosecution of this war, despite their massive amount of uh, military spending over um, really decades, has not really shown that they have a military that's capable of, of defeating this, this tribal militia in the north. So they have extensive weapons. They have state-of-the-art um, technology and they're not able to, to defeat the Houthis. And, and it's unlikely that given four and a half more years of bombing that they'll be any more successful than they have been over the past, past four and a half years. So, Samantha, when I hear all this, part of me says where you started is exactly the key point that, yes, this is a big facility for Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia doesn't matter as much as it used to. And it's got this quagmire in Yemen. There's no obvious response for it against Iran if it tries directly, and therefore it won't. And so they will come looking to us to do something, but we care less about them than we used to. And by the way, they're super unpopular right now, and Congress isn't itching to pass a sort of authorization to use force to defend Saudi Arabia, which it once did, right, as recently as 1991. And so my question is this, is Saudi Arabia kind of on its own here? Is this the sort of Khashoggi and Yemen chickens coming home to roost where you really piss off the entire world and then somebody destroys your oil facilities and the world's kind of like, deal with it, dude? 
I think there is some truth to what you said. I do think that the Saudis are, are much less popular than they used to be. I think Mohammed bin Salman really tried to paint himself as a reformer. And he did some things. He brought music to the kingdom and in cinemas and let women drive and a lot of things that he, he did to make himself look like a reformer, whereas beh- behind the scenes, he was causing all kinds of troubles with the war in Yemen, with the Khashoggi murder, with continuing to imprison dissidents and, and political enemies. And so to some extent, it is, I think, that the chicken's coming home to roost. But also, I mean, Saudi is still absolutely crucial to world oil markets. I don't want to I don't want to downplay their importance. And even to the United States, we still import oil. And the prices that we all see at the gas station when we drive by and stop to fill up are influenced by what happens in Saudi Arabia, probably more than any other country. But yeah, they have kind of um, alienated a lot of folks in the world. And the other thing that this is that's happening in the background is that oil markets are pretty well supplied right now. There's been issues in Iran. There's been issues in Venezuela and Libya that have taken some oil off the market. But by and large, markets are still pretty well supplied, and they've kind of shrugged off those disruptions. If this disruption is is short, they can probably shrug this one off too. And so that kind of changes the world's calculus towards Saudi. We're concerned about Saudi for the most part because we're concerned about their oil. And when we feel like markets are well supplied, we, we do back away from them a bit. They haven't helped themselves out, but that, that reality stands. So Suzanne, before we turn back to Iran, this morning or yesterday, Washington Post columnist Elizabeth Brunig tweeted, who gives a rat's ass if Saudi Arabia was attacked in a kind of reflection of exactly what we've been talking about. And you responded, I thought, with a a particularly interesting tweet. You tweeted, I've been thinking about this tweet, that is Elizabeth Brunig's tweet, and my first reaction is, how does a Washington Post opinion writer have so little understanding of energy and the global economy and so little regard for the potential implications of Middle East conflict for people in the region as well as elsewhere? And so that seems to me to put a interesting bracket on the principle of you know, you're on your own, Saudi, that we've just been flirting with. So obviously, one of the things that limits that principle is the impact on global oil markets and, you know, global other markets that are influenced by oil. But, you know, there's more to your tweet than that. You know, there's a You can decide you don't care or give a rat's ass about the Middle East, but the Middle East may still give a rat's ass about you. What are the things that limit that principle, the ability to just say, you know, Saudi Arabia, you're kind of on your own on this one, even if they're really unpopular and even, you know, even if they're making the Iranians look good these days? Right. Well, I think the primary interest that the United States has with respect to the security of Saudi Arabia, and particularly in the aftermath of an attack like this, is fundamentally about the health of the global economy. And this is where I think, you know, some of the rhetoric out there that we are energy independent, the the sorts of things that Samantha said uh, in her description of Trump administration policy uh, on U.S. energy production at home uh, it has been problematic because it's given Americans the idea that somehow we are um, completely divorced from anything that might happen with respect to uh, energy supply coming out of the Gulf. In fact, of course, because Saudi Arabia is such a an important, reliable, low-cost producer of energy, anything that happens in Saudi Arabia will have an immediate ripple effect on global oil prices and global oil prices. 
prices despite changes, uh, alternative energy supplies and green new deals and all kinds of other grand aspirations. Global energy supplies are still a very important uh, factor in overall global economic indices. And so you saw markets uh, react very strenuously, particularly in Asia, which is, of course, more and more tied to Saudi energy supply, even as the United States becomes less, at least individually, dependent on oil coming out of Saudi Arabia. So I think, you know, first and foremost, that's uh, one of the reasons why we have to give a rat's ass. But the broader reason is simply that we we can't walk away or disregard the conflicts that have been raging in the Middle East simply because we have paid such a high price in terms of both blood and treasure on the part of the American people. Um, these conflicts come back to haunt us in a very immediate way in terms of our own security at home, in terms of our security of our allies and partners around the region. Uh, and around the world, but they also have an enormous effect on the people of an important region of the world. And this idea that, you know, a war in Yemen we can simply tolerate because we, we needed to give the Saudis a little bit of running room after signing a nuclear deal with Iran, which they found abhorrent, uh, I think was an incredibly horrific calculus on the part of the Obama administration, which effectively was uh, in in a position to green light and did green light uh, the initial uh, decision on the part of the Saudis to launch this conflict there. Um, you know, the war in Syria has had a tremendous effect both for on, on obviously the Syrian people and the wider region on the, the prospects for a peaceful and, and prosperous Middle East, but also, of course, on, on refugee flows into Europe and on European politics. And so the idea that we can simply sit back and watch the prospect of another war, a war that would engage this longstanding sectarian and geopolitical rivalry between the two most important countries today in the Middle East and that we would we, we simply shouldn't care, I think, is both um, inaccurate in terms of the security implications and incredibly inhumane. So I have experienced a kind of weird Iran whiplash over the last couple of months where we've gone from being within a few minutes of attacking them to... John Bolton leaving in a huff or being fired in a huff to wanting to meet them socially in New York to now uh, suddenly saber rattling about this incident in a fashion that is certainly suggestive of possible military action. So I'm wondering, is there some way to understand the U.S. side of the U.S.-Iran relationship that makes any more sense of it than I am instinctively able to make? Or does it simply not make sense? That's a very open-ended question. Um, I think, you know, the Trump administration undertook a policy toward Iran without really thinking through how it would play out beyond the immediate initial and overwhelming, frankly, success that was achieved in reimposing sanctions on Iran and having a massive economic cost uh, for Iran. There was either magical thinking that somehow there would be regime change or wholesale capitulation. I think neither one of those assumptions has any bearing in reality. But there wasn't a sort of fully thought out appreciation of how easily something like this would come to pass. And of course, there was widespread anticipation that 
this kind of escalation was almost inevitable when President Trump made the decision to exit the nuclear deal in May of 2018. It took another year before the Iranians began to react in any serious way. And even then, these attacks that we saw over the course of the summer, the efforts to begin to back away from their own commitments under the nuclear deal were relatively incremental, relatively small scale, and enabled us all to sort of go back to forgetting that this was, in fact, a very live point of friction in the international system. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to forget in the near future. Scott, I want to finish with you. When you look at this, it's a real mess of sort of interrelated issues that range from Yemen to, in the immediate crisis sense, this attack to, in a larger sense, the U.S.-Iranian frictions that are driven by the withdrawal from the JCPOA, as well as a lot of issues in Iranian behavior that lead to escalatory steps like this one. And all of it takes place against a sort of international law backdrop in which there's a whole lot of nested relationships and sets of obligations that are dicey and complicated and 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 fraught. What do you see as, I mean, is, is there anything here that is meaningfully guided by international law Or is this simply what the different pressures the different parties can put on each other at any given moment in time? Well, I think the simple answer is that it is both. Because the international law really structures what is seen as a degree of legitimate state-to-state behavior among different states, it has a long-term effect of empowering or potentially disempowering states, depending on the degree to which they can make a credible case that what they're doing is consistent with it. In this case, the Trump administration has been pursuing action against Iran that violates certainly at least international political commitments in this form of the JCPOA. It was not a treaty, but it was a political commitment uh, that also strains in various cases ideas of territorial sovereignty in regards to secondary sanctions that pushes the envelope in regards to a lot of other sort of international law and policy. And that makes it harder for it to rally support and to make credible threats against Iran because it seems to have shown itself so willing to depart from international norms and standards. Uh, Much the same can be said about Saudi Arabia. And so while, you know, international law can serve as a constraint in the short term and sometimes can seem as a weakening element on states' abilities in that kind of time frame. In the longer term, it, it can also help to empower them if they can build a case as to what they're doing is correct and therefore get more support from from the international community. Here, none of the relevant actors that are on the receiving end of the strike have done so. And I think it weakens their ability to respond and limits their options. We're going to have to leave it there. Gregory, Samantha, Suzanne, Scott, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Gregory Johnson, Suzanne Maloney, Samantha Gross, and Scott R. Anderson for coming on the show. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahau, and our audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.